everybody. Welcome to this episode of the What's Next podcast, where I have the honor and pleasure of welcoming Brian Wong to the show today. He is a Chinese-American entrepreneur and investor. He was the first American and only the 52nd employee to join Alibaba Group, where he contributed to the company's early globalization efforts and served as Jack Ma's special assistant for international affairs. During his tenure, Wong established the Alibaba Global Initiative division and was the founder and executive director of the Alibaba Global Leadership Academy. He remains an advisor to the team and regularly teaches courses on China's digital economy and the Tao of Alibaba's management principles. He also has a new book out called The Tao of Alibaba, or depending on how you say it, The Tao of Alibaba. We'll talk about that in a second. So welcome, Brian, to the show. Thanks so much, Tiffany. Great to be here. All right. We're going to start out with something called bullish and bearish. Nothing too painful. Bullish, you're for it. Bearish, you're against it. Are you ready? I am all set. A little nervous, but I'm ready. That's okay. You know it's not that painful. <laughs> all right. First one, holding a board meeting in space. Bullish or bearish? Bearish. Bearish. Yeah. You had to think about that. You're like, wait, hold on a second. Like, I have to go to space for the board yeah. meeting? And I'm thinking about all the all things right. you have to adjust to if you're in space, trying to even drink a glass of water. It's not going to be simple. Right. <laughs> well, it would it would at least be a fun conversation. Yes. Um, all right. The next one. Robot employees unionizing. Bearish. <laughs> all right. Too bearish. Too bearish. The next one. This is this is going to be uh, it's kind of a bullish and bearish and maybe an either or, mm. but pickleball bullish or bearish or tennis. Oh, uh, that's kind of okay. I'm um, I'm bullish. Yeah, I'm bullish on pickleball. Unfortunately, despite my my disdain for the sport. <laughs> All right. Well, that's uh, hopefully that was the most painful part of this <laughs> you know conversation we're about to have. But okay. <laughs> But listen, you are in a highly unique position. Um, you know, as luck would have it, just this week I posted um, on LinkedIn um, a great video from uh, Jack Ma about mm. IQ, EQ, oh, yes. LQ, and the power of all of them, and how women have a much better opportunity of balancing all three. And then I put dot, 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 according to Jack Ma, <laughs> right? <laughs> so. Perfect. But you had a bird's eye, but you had a bird's eye view, right? Of of being, you know, you were the 52nd employee of a company that, you know, one could argue completely changed so much about commerce, about uh, development of products, about democratizing that. And and I think that, you know, your ability to put this into a book called The Tao of Alibaba, I'm I'm just fascinated at as the whole journey being employee 52 and then kind of 16 years later, you leaving. Yeah. yeah. We don't have all the time in the world, right? Sure. But what, what sort of motivated you to, to join it in the first place and then stay that long? Well, yeah, Tiffany, thanks so much again for having me and, and great question. You know, I, I grew up in Palo Alto all, you know, from my whole childhood. So I was surrounded by, you know, this spirit of innovation my father was a um, physician, and I always thought I would end up following his footsteps. But the, the motivation there wasn't just to do what my dad was asking me or expecting me to do. It's because I, I knew doctors could help people uh, in a meaningful way. 
But I also felt like as a doctor helping individuals one by one, there had to be a, a, a greater way to impact society. So I thought initially, how do you do the greatest good for the greatest number? Maybe you go into public health. And so that was the track that I was thinking for myself at a young age. But when I met Jack Ma, and this was after I had spent some time in China, actually taking a year off, frankly, before medical school and seeing the world, and then taking doing a short stint in public service, actually in city politics in San Francisco, I, I was in search of something that would be along those lines of what I aspired to do, but maybe even you know different from what the traditional path was. Jack Ma, in his vision, when I met him in San Francisco, was this unique combination of technology and emerging markets. And that was 1999. And I said, well, that's a, that's a powerful combination. And um, you know, this, this individual, Jack, has a great vision for this, and he's looking for people to join the team. So that got me excited. So I left San Francisco and moved to Hangzhou to, to be a part of that. So that's kind of the backstory on how I got involved with Alibaba in the early days. So since the title of your book, your book, I've sort of teased it a bit, right? The Tao of Alibaba or the Tao of Alibaba. Why don't we start there? Because what does the word Tao mean? And exactly how did you sort of tie that to Alibaba? And I think there's a little, you know, juxtaposition there, right? Being a Chinese American versus being in China and using these terms, it's, it's a little bit different. But I think the context of it is super powerful. Maybe you can step us through it. Well, thanks, uh, Tiffany. That that question actually is a very important one, and I and I, <laughs> I like how you called me out on is it the Tao with the T or the Dao with the D, and you're very right to point out that the Dao is probably the more proper way of pronouncing it in Chinese. Um, although the, the Tao with the T is more recognized, maybe in, in in lexicon of kind of discussing this philosophy, but it all relates to the same thing, which is Taoism, and Taoism is a thousands of year old. Chinese philosophy that is one of three major kind of influences on Chinese culture, Taoism, Buddhism, and Confucianism. I chose this title because, you know, it took me almost two decades to figure out this ethos of the company and how interrelated it is with this Taoist philosophy. And when you talk about my experience as an American sort of Chinese going to uh, China uh, and working, you know, Taoism there's three aspects that I talk about, but one of the key features of Taoism is this sort of unity of contradictions or this, what they call dialectic. So in America, I might feel very culturally Chinese, but when I went to China, I felt very American. And it's this sort of this polarity that um, in a lot of ways also runs through the philosophy of the company. Um, Jack always talked about how Alibaba, you know, uh, was a company that embraced uh, Chinese philosophy, but also used Western management principles. If you think about the company also, it is the world's largest ecosystem uh, for e-commerce, all built off pursuing the smallest businesses uh, in, in the markets that they pursued. So how do you, you know, this, this sort of juxtaposition of, of two opposite things that coexist is very much kind of a Taoist principle. Um, I also talk about other aspects like this concept of the path or the way. That's what most people think about when they hear, you know, Taoism. And that really is very um, a, a key feature kind of in, in, in the management philosophy of, of the company that it was guided by a, a principle that was unwavering is this idea to help small businesses, no matter, you know, what the, the market, what the situation, um, 
what the, their needs were. That was kind of the driving force in the company's um, sort of purpose or reason for existing. And then I'd say the third aspect was really about this harmony, harmony with the, the, the market around you, the society, and, and frankly, kind of the universal principle of sort of forces that are at play. And if you studied Alibaba and looked at it over the last 20 years, how it evolved, it was very much in sync with the time back in 1999 when small businesses were looking for connections to the global buyers uh, in terms of this B2B sector. And then thinking about how China's economy restructured itself from an export-driven economy to a domestic-driven economy. That's when Taobao came into existence. And then this whole rise of sort of digital payments and how there was this low trust cash-based uh, environment in terms of the economy and how uh, digital payments changed that and created a whole new financial system. So all of those elements were kind of in sync with the changes that were happening in society and frankly, the world at that time. Well, and how did those three things uh, play, a, play a part in Alibaba's approach to strategy? Because I'm, yeah. it's kind of I've, I'm seeing a pattern here, right? There's sort of the yeah. three things, and then there's kind of a three-stage cycle um, in the approach to strategy. Yes. So, <laughs> how does that align? You know, Alibaba, it had a very constant and in, in, in clear mission, and and then within that mission, though, there was this dynamism or this fluidity that allowed it to adapt to the problems that I identified that existed in the market or in society. So rather than have like a this clear plan that was all laid out many, many years in advance, what it did was it, it sort of evolved based on once you created one business, then you started to see what were the other issue, issues or needs that were evolving or that you uncovered, then that business would emerge. And then in subsequent kind of uh, in sequence like that. So Alipay was actually built off the fact that uh, Taobao as a consumer marketplace didn't have a suitable payment system. So they had to actually create that payment system. Tainao, which is the digital logistics network, was built off the fact that this e-commerce marketplace was generating so much demand, but the logistics infrastructure in China was not sufficient to fulfill that. So they actually created that logistics network uh, and so on and so on. So in a way, it evolved. And I think that that's also very much in tune with kind of how Taoism talks about this this need to change, but at the same time remain constant. And again, that sort of sounds like a contradiction in ways, but um, that ethos is sort of what allowed Jack to enable what I would say kind of his management and his teams to kind of um, uh, you know grow the company in a way that allowed to, it spurred innovation without him having to be too hands on or top down command and control type of management approach. And I'd say that it sounds like a lot of this is aligned around this greater purpose. Yeah. You've kind of woven it in the last couple of answers. Yeah. Uh, and I and I feel like, you know, I've I've had the honor and pleasure of traveling through Asia really since I was I was like I think 8 was the first time I ever put my foot on that <laughs> continent. And and I would say that you know, it's very much um, uh, oriented around this purpose. Yes. Uh, and, and the Western companies, especially in the U.S., uh, really are finding their way towards purpose kind of over the last decade or so. You could yeah. argue it's been longer, but it's it's definitely more of a conversation now and more so even coming out of the 
coming out on the other side of the, the hardest part of the pandemic. Yes. And so what can what can Western companies sort of learn from Eastern companies, but more importantly, obviously, since you've got the experience at Alibaba around aligning people and the company on purpose? So I, I think the, the distinction you talk about, uh, Tiffany, is this kind of holistic mindset versus what some would call reductionist. And uh, Asian culture, I think, tends to look at things in, in its totality, whereas uh, the Western approach is more about specialization. And so I think to some extent, um, uh, and both have their pros and cons, obviously, but Jack and also personality-wise, has always been someone who's thought about kind of a greater purpose. And, and part of it might be because of his life experience, but also he, he truly believes in, in things that um, will help society because he has a strong sense of empathy. Um, uh, and, and we can talk more about that aspect of his leadership style. So I think all along, Jack has thought about how does Alibaba fit into what, this ecosystem and um, what do we need to be aware of in terms of when we're building this business, uh, the different facets that we're, we're impacting, not just the customer themselves, but the larger kind of market and, and, and how it's affecting change in society. We talked about, you know, the social problems that exist. You know, one of the, the interesting things, Jack always talked about customer first, employee second, shareholder third. That was kind of one of its company values. And many people sort of laughed at that, particularly when we went public in 2007 the first time for the B2B business, a lot of the analysts were critical of him and saying, you know, shareholders should be number one. And this is what Milton Friedman and everyone else uh, learns in business school. Um, we're, we're taught that. But Jack stayed true to that because it's a key motivator in driving the staff and the employees in, in joining the company, but also the work that they do. And what I think is very interesting now in 2019, there was an announcement by an organization called the U.S. Uh, business Roundtable. Uh, consisting of the 180 of the top corporations in America, led by Jamie Dimon at that time. They actually revised their um, their manifesto and shifted away from shareholder supremacy to a multi-sort of stakeholder uh, approach in terms of what corporations' responsibilities really you know, should address. Not just shareholders, although they remain important, but also employees, customers, and society at large. And I think when you look at all the ESG efforts now, that is kind of a same trend, uh, which is, is moving towards a more holistic approach and, and what businesses' responsibilities are. Do you think that was one of the biggest things that made the approach to leadership unique at Alibaba? I mean, you just said a couple of things. You said it wasn't so much top down, right? Yeah. It gave people a purpose. They understood. Yeah. Everyone was very clear. It, 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 in your example, it was customer, employee, shareholder. Yeah. You know, we're trying to solve these big societal issues. We yeah. don't have this, so let's develop it. There isn't that. Let's develop it. Mm. What do you think was one of the most misunderstood, maybe, approaches to leadership at Alibaba? Well, I mean, I think that a lot of people doubted the company's viability because if you think about it, the founder was an English teacher. He had no technology background. He didn't have a business background. He actually, if you look at his um, progression in life, I mean, he failed his college exam twice and he couldn't get a job at places like Kentucky Fried Chicken. So he was the most unlikely of tech leaders in a market that was at the time when he started the company, 8 million internet users per capita income was $800. So I think that what the story here is just how, how was this possible? How could a company like 
Alibaba with that background become such an influential force within not just China, but kind of globally. And I think misunderstood is probably that this organization built off the back of such an idealistic view could become what it is. And it is possible to do good for both business and good for society. And when you look at kind of the net impact of this company in terms of its role as a catalyst for a market that started with very little, and then now e-commerce constitutes 52% of all retail sales, this is unprecedented. America is the next largest, and it's about 18% of all retail is e-commerce. You ask yourself, how did that happen? And, and it, it goes back to that motivation, as, as we talked about, a purpose-driven organization, but at the same time had these systems in place that, you know, many of them are kind of Western sort of systems and processes, but at the same time integrated with this Asian sort of philosophical ethos. How does an organization that has such a empathetic lens, right? And this glass half full lens, right? Instead of half empty, right? Deal with crisis. You know, you've got a very well-known and unlikely leader (laughs) who drove such tremendous change, not only just locally and even regionally, but then eventually globally. And moving from kind of that founder to new leadership Mm. was this, and I know you weren't there when it happened, but, you know, was there this concern that maybe it would lose some of this sort of feeling that had been so successful historically? So you're referring to the um, the latest sort of Jack's retirement and then the transition to sort of, uh, you know, Daniel and the, the new CEO and chairman? Correct. Yeah. Well, so, so I was there actually at that time because he, he, um, he formally stepped down. Jack formally retired in 2019. And prior to that, what I can tell you is there was the creation, and this was years in the making, of something called the Alibaba Partnership. This is, I think, unprecedented in any sort of tech company. You might see this at law firms. But the company decided, I think it was all the way around 2011, 2012, that they wanted to create something that would ensure the longevity of the company. You know, Within the vision statement of Alibaba, they say they want to last 102 years, which is a peculiar number, which you probably know the background on that, Tiffany, but just for those who don't, Jack initially said 80 years and said, uh, that doesn't really mean a whole lot. 100 years is even less interesting, but 102 years people will remember because it's a strange number, but it also means that Alibaba will last, uh, it, it will last three centuries. It will traverse from 1999 into 2000, and then one year into 2000, past 2100 will be three centuries. And so this long-term mentality is really only going to be, is what led to this partnership idea. And you know he was really frightened by what he saw in companies like Yahoo and HP, and how once the founders left or the spirit of the company was was diluted, they end up sort of disappearing or becoming, le- uh, ver- you know, a, a, a figment of what what the company had started in terms of its its purpose and its in its mission. And so this partnership is intended. It's thirty eight people uh, who whose role is to really protect and promote the values and the, the the mission and vision of the organization. Daniel is the CEO and chairman today. Daniel Zhang. But he's got you know this partnership there to kind of guide him. He is also a partner, uh, but that will ensure the longevity 
of the organization, but also that the essence of the company remains. And, you know, there are a few other tech companies that try that kind of partnership leadership concept, if okay. you will. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and, and do you think that that creates, uh, if not done right, that sort of lame duck leader kind of syndrome, right? Where the, <laughs> where the partnership is making the decisions yet uh, the quote unquote CEO is just a figurehead or, yeah. or can it be more? So if someone's listening to this, right. And goes yeah. either they're the CEO of a small company or a medium sized company, or they're the president of a division, or maybe even a CEO, right. That they yeah. go, huh. You know, cause it's kind of succession planning in, in, in an organism that's constantly succession planning, right. Because it's, <laughs> always working together towards a common goal. And if something, yeah. one piece of it falls out, the yeah. organism keeps going. Yes. Yes. Or, you know, or it's the opposite. What I was saying, where it's kind of this, the organism is really, you know, that partnership is really running the business, yeah. but you've got a figurehead publicly that is uh, not really making those big decisions. Well, look, my, my assessment of this, and this is the first time there's been this succession, but my, my read is that the partnership is there mainly to nominate the, the leadership positions, whether it's the CEO or the candidates for the board positions themselves, but they don't get involved in sort of the day-to-day governance of the company. And that's really the CEO chairman role and then his relationship with the board of directors, which the partnership does not, the partnership only nominates people that will be appointed to the board. So I think that the partnership itself is, is pretty removed from, you know, trying to tell the CEO what to do on a day-to-day basis. But I think it also serves as a resource. I mean, if if they nominate and approve, say, you know, the CEO, then the CEO can feel good that he has the support of this partnership to back him and provide advice and feedback. But he's he's the one in charge of running the company, he or she. Yeah. We're sort of getting down to the wire here. And, <laughs> okay. and I keep talking to you for hours because I have so many questions. But, you know, I, I want to make sure that I bring this back down to, you know, if People are listening to this, um, and once again, you know, please go pick up a, a copy of Brian Wong's new book, uh, "The Tao of uh, Alibaba." But what are the key takeaways for people who are going to read the book? You know, yeah. what if you if you were to say, why would they want to pick up this book? Right, it's so noisy right now. Watch a mm. TED talk, listen to a podcast, read a book, listen to a book, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. That what would be that that big? This is why this book is different, and this is why. I think regardless of who reads it, small or large company, individual contributor or leader would find value. Well, okay. I think the first thing is, you know, I, I grew up in, in the Bay Area. A lot of my friends are in tech and working at, you know, Silicon Valley companies. And and these companies, whether it's Google, Facebook, Apple, whatnot, have been really the, the role models for all of us around the world. They're the inspiration even for companies like Alibaba in its inception. And I think that's really good to have that. But I think it's also very important as the world changes and the dynamics and the needs of the markets evolve, it's important to also look at other success cases and how these companies think about, you know, going about um, not just, you know, pursuing their, their missions, but also how they, how they manage their people. And um, what are the elements that one can take away that might be useful in that regard? And this is particularly relevant to these emerging markets. A lot of entrepreneurs are looking for role models that are are like them. You know, they didn't they're not Harvard dropouts, they're not Stanford PhDs. And so Jack Ma in a way gives them that hope like hey, if he could do this in his country, why couldn't I do the same? So, I think that's a useful reference point. Second is really kind of um 
understanding that there are these elements, uh, Alibaba in a lot of ways embraced these elements. You talked about LQ and this element of, of, of altruism and how does that play into a business? I think that oftentimes we think about business really just kind of generating um, you know, revenues and profits and, 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 and value for kind of shareholders. But um, when you have a, a bigger goal, a bigger mission, um, that is a great motivating force, not just uh, for marketing purposes, but for the employees themselves and really giving them, um, building up that, that motivation and the loyalty to the organization. Uh, that becomes both a moneymaker, but also a, a very powerful force of, of, of change and impact in, in the society through the work that you do. Uh, so I would say that those two are, are really um, key. And then third, kind of from a philosophical standpoint, uh, Tiffany, you brought up Taoism. You know, I think Taoism presents a different way of looking at the world. If you think about the world in terms of not just looking for consistency and logic, but also the, this, this dialectic and kind of finding truth between two kind of opposites, um, that's really what I think opened up possibilities for Alibaba as a company to think about how do they evolve, how do they shift within this, these, these, these polarities and these dynamics. And that, I think, is a useful kind of um, way of looking at the world that's probably different from most of us, uh, from the way that most of us approach it in, in our kind of Western perspective. I'd say there was a few things for me in the little bit that I got a chance to, to, to look at. Yeah. I would say that one of them was that Jack Ma liked to pick quote unquote rookies, right? To lead a company's major initiative. Yeah. And, and I think that's <laughs> a fantastic insight, right? Because yeah. I think people look to experience and they say, oh, you've never done this before. Or you yeah. don't have this degree. And yet <clears throat> a company is as, as successful as Alibaba will, will try somebody um, on a big project yep. that maybe doesn't have that experience. Anything you could say there? Absolutely. So this idea of rookies, um, Jack was very non-traditional in the way that he would appoint people uh, that had no background whatsoever to lead uh, new initiatives. Um, Ali Pay is a great example. Jonathan Liu was a hotel manager. He came on as a former hotel manager. He came on as a sales head for Shenzhen. And I remember this conversation that he had with Jonathan. He said, Jonathan, what do you know about the financial sector or industry? And Jonathan said, nothing. And then he said, well, have you heard of PayPal? And Jonathan said, no. And Jack said, great, you're going to be the guy to lead Alipay. And most people were scratching their head. Like, why on earth would you appoint someone to that role without a banking background, without a, like, you know, understanding internet um, finance? Uh, granted, it was a very nascent industry at the time. But he wanted someone who was not uh, kind of biased or kind of entrenched in that um, sort of legacy thinking of what a bank or a financial services should do. And he wanted someone who was very customer centric that really took the time to understand the needs. And look what Alipay and, and Financial became. It was, it was just a complete revolutionary sort of change in the way that society did payments and even financial services. He did the same thing for Tainal, which was the logistics uh, data network system. He, he appointed someone who was previously a secretary at the company and then moved up the ranks in the admin department as a VP, but she had no logistics background. And he decided to appoint her because she understood how companies worked, the, the importance of systems uh, sort of fitting together in an integrated way. And now Tainel is the largest logistics data network in, in the country or for the world in that matter. 
<laughs> which which I think is shock would be shocking to many, right? Like, yeah, I I think there's so much in power in having a beginner's mind and not uh, that expert's mind that will keep you from doing things, right? Yes. I think the beginner's mind is super powerful. Um, the other one I'd say is uh, a you story, really. I guess there was uh, a walkabout that you did through the poorest <laughs> parts of China that led to an epiphany for you. And that aligns so nicely to what, you know, the listeners of this podcast have heard me say probably a thousand times, but Tom Peters famous, right? Management by wandering around, which really was from Bill Hewitt, from Hewlett Packard. Right. And so in search of excellence, it's all about, you know, wandering around and, and, you know, if you're looking for answers to what you should be doing from a business standpoint or what's working and not working, go walk in your warehouse, go (laughs) sit in your call center, go have conversations with your customers and your employees, et cetera. Yes. But I'm guessing that walking through the poorest parts of China is very (laughs) different than walking through a call center. So uh, maybe you can, maybe you could give us uh, uh, how that was an epiphany for you. Uh, Tiffany, I'm impressed with your level of, um, understanding of this uh, story. Uh, yeah. So I was um, in a moment of kind of, you know, searching for, for the next thing. And I had left the company. I had attempted to do a startup. We, we, it wasn't what I expected. Uh, we sold the company, but I went back to Jack looking for some advice. And I said, Jack, what should I do? I, I feel like I'm not really clear on my purpose. And most people, when you go to a mentor, you expect them to give you a few ideas on industries you can look at and then introduce you to a few people to talk to, and then you're going to find your next job. And like you said, he told me instead to go to the poorest parts of China and stay there as long as I was uh, uncomfortable and ask myself why I'm uncomfortable. And that was a very, in my mind, strange sort of piece of advice to give, but I went and did it. And I guess, like you mentioned, it's not all that uncommon in terms of sort of, you know, people's journeys. But what it allowed for me to do is really identify what's important to me as an individual uh, and what I want to do with my life in terms of addressing things I think are important. What I witnessed was something called the hollowing of, of the villages in China, working age people all leaving their villages and going to cities to work in kind of different menial labor jobs. They're leaving their children who were infants behind with the grandparents. And as I went to these villages, I started to see more and more of this. And I, and I recognized that this is a major social issue. And I said, well, what can I actually do to address this, this terrible sort of phenomenon that's happening in China? Because I think this is going to become a huge societal problem. Elderly people are dying unattended to and children are, being, are growing up without any sort of attention or uh, proper care. And so that actually is what brought me back to the company at Alibaba, because I, I, I discovered that there is this phenomenon called Taobao Villages, where e-commerce was actually revitalizing these rural communities. And I saw that not only as a solution for a problem that was existing in China, but you know, all around the world, there are rural communities who are not part of the mainstream economy, who um, really struggle to make a living, but also try the informal economy uh, marginalized sort of parts of society don't ever become part of this mainstream kind of society. And so technology and e-commerce were actually addressing that. And I, that's one of the things that I started to really push and share, you know, in the work that I did after I went back. Well, what a great story. What a great way to end this amazing conversation with you, Brian. Thank you so much for your time in joining us on this episode of the What's Next podcast. So for those of you listening, go pick up 
Brian's new book, The Tao of Alibaba. And while you're at it, The Tao of Pooh is a great book too. <laughs> Which we, good compliment. Yeah, the two go together. <laughs> to buy the two together. But how can people keep in touch with you, Brian? Well, it's easiest to find me on LinkedIn. So just type in Brian Wong and Tao of Alibaba, you'll find me. And I'd, I'd love to just get people's feedback. And you know, anytime that people would like me to share the story with their groups, I'm happy to do so. So thanks so much, Tiffany. Oh, thank you, Brian. Yeah.